Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Acts chapter 18, picking up verse 24. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew. And uh, if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can feel free to take that today. If you're a visitor with us, we're so glad you're here with us. We are in the middle of going through the book of Acts. We've been in there since January, and we're just going to keep on chugging along. So Acts chapter 18, verse 24, we see where Paul now is arriving into the area of Ephesus. Over the last few weeks, we saw he was in Athens, and we talked about evangelism and a culture of idolatry. Last week, he was in Corinth. We talked about evangelism and a culture of immorality. And so today, we're going to talk about evangelism and a culture of insincerity. Uh, insincerity, as you know, is the quality of not being genuine. And it means to be hypocritical or to wear a mask. The word sincere actually comes from the Latin word that is a combo of two words, sine, without, and sera, wax. What's interesting about this is that in the ancient world, dishonest merchants would use wax to hide the defects, such as cracks in their pottery, so that they could sell the merchandise at a higher price. But the more reputable merchants would hang a sign over their pottery, saying, Sine Sarah, which means without wax, so that you would know as a customer that the merchandise was genuine and good. The same is true with carpentry. Anybody ever had a, a carpentry uh, miscut, and then you were like, you know what, a little bit of caulk, we'll fix that right up. You won't even be able to tell. That's, that's how I do woodworking. And uh, so it's not sine um, Sarah, it's, it's with wax. So um, this is how the culture is. And as we get into scripture, you're going to see that it kind of bounces around. This narrative kind of bounces a little bit on us. But I want you to see that there is a culture of insincerity. It's a culture that likes to wax over the cracks of life. And if, if we're honest, if we look at the culture in which we live in, we could easily say that we live in a culture of insincerity. If you look on social media, if you look at how people make posts, it's always the best post with the best filter, and uh, you're like, that can't be real, and it's probably not real. That was just the, man, the lighting was perfect that day, and you got the picture, and so you, you got to post it. A lot of times, we like to use the wax. We like to fill in the cracks so that we look like we have everything together. You know, the, the truth is, it happens in church also. We all come in here wounded, cracked beaten and bruised from the week, and yet we put on the face, don't we? How are you doing? Good, good, doing good. How about you? Doing good? All right, good. There's a tendency to live with insincerity because we don't want people to see the real us. And as we get into the scripture, I think that we need to be encouraged to have a sincere faith. First Timothy, Paul's writing in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. There's that verse there, uh, the aim, verse 5. 
the aim of our charge is love. Now, if we're going to sum up the aim, if we're going to sum up the call of the Christian life, he gives it right here in this, in this verse, is love. The issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I don't know who said it, but a person who aims nowhere usually hits it. Let me ask you, what's your aim? What's your calling? As those who call themselves believers in Christ, what is the aim as you wake up in the morning? What is your target as you go about your day? Is your target, is your aim, love? love. I mean, we can't miss it in Scripture. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the law of the prophets. The aim of our charge, the aim of our calling is to love. It's to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you, know, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. How will the world know that we are living out the Christian life? By love. A love that is sincere. A genuine love, a love that is from first a love of God and now is a love of others. And so we love one another. First John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I lay this out to tell you that there is a culture of insincerity, even among those who call themselves followers of Christ. That there is a time when we can have all the information, we can have all the biblical study, and yet fail to aim at the target in which we're called to aim at, which is to love out of a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. It's a love that marks us as disciples of Jesus Christ. So from love, a pure heart. Let me, let me show you some of these verses. A pure heart. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? If we are going to rest in our own feelings and emotions and heart, our heart is going to lead us astray. We're not going to love the way God calls us to love out of a pure heart. A pure heart is one that's been radically changed by God. This is why David in 51.10 would say, Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He would say, look, there's something wrong in me right now. There's, there's a prideful uh, heart that is, that is causing me to be selfish. But a pure heart is one that focuses more on the glory of God than it does seeking its own pleasure. A pure heart focuses on the glory of God more than it focuses on seeking its own pleasure. This is why this is New Covenant language. Jeremiah, you would have read this this week if you're going through the chronological Bible with us in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. 
For this is the covenant I make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. A pure heart. Love from a pure heart is a heart that has been radically changed by Jesus Christ. It's a new heart. It's new covenant language. With that is a good conscience. The Greek word here for conscience is two words meaning knowing together. And it refers to the knowledge of ourselves that we share together with God's knowledge of us. If we're really honest, if we, if we don't want to wax things over, we, we really know the cracks in our life. We really know the areas that are imperfections. We really know the areas that we like to hide from other people. But who can we not hide those from? God. God knows our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows. And really, if we're going to be honest, a good conscience is one that can go before the Lord saying, you know everything about me, and I'm laying everything in front of you. I'm not playing any games. I'm not, not wearing a mask. I'm not trying to be super Christian at the moment, God. I just desperately need you. This is why the writer of Hebrews would say in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A good conscience is one that is different than an evil conscience. What's an evil conscience? An evil conscience is one that has been seared. It's one that no longer feels the conviction of the Spirit in your life. It no longer is convicted by sins that are in your life, but a good conscience knows the prodding of the Lord. Isaiah 5, 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In a culture... In a culture like ours, there's a lot that call evil good. And, and really, if we're honest, there's a lot in the church that would call evil good. And if that's the case, then the conscience has been seared. It's been wounded. There needs to be a sincere faith. Our aim is love. From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Sincere faith means without hypocrisy, without wearing masks. This is why Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, a sincere faith is a tested faith. A sincere faith is one that has gone through the test that holds on to Jesus Christ. It's from a pure heart. You can't do it without God doing something radically within you. It is from a good conscience. It's knowing what is evil and what is good. And it is walking in that path. And it is a sincere faith. It is a faith that doesn't play games. It doesn't try to wax things over. It's a faith that has been tested. Paul Washer says this, here in America, because of the last several decades of modern evangelism, the idea of born again is totally lost. 
Now it only means that at one time in a crusade, you made a decision and you think that you were sincere. What Paul Washer is getting at is that there are many in America, especially that call themselves Christians, who, if you really look at their life, don't live out a sincere faith. They have waxed over the areas of their life. They've said, I'm good. I'm trying to be a good person. I, I remember making that decision when I was younger. I remember going to that revival. I remember going to that vacation Bible school. I remember filling out that card. I remember talking to a creepy old pastor for a second. I remember walking the aisle. Yeah, you know? You know, and I, I remembered those things. And so I, I had to have been sincere. But does your life dictate one that is aimed? George McDonald, I heard this quote last week, and I shared it with a men's group on Wednesday night that's been kicked off. And he said this, instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it or once sustained because he said, do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe, or even you want to believe in him, if you do not do anything he tells you. A sincere faith is one that's been tested and is obedient. As we get into Acts 18, 24 through nineteen twenty, it is a culture of insincerity. And, and like I said, we're going to kind of bounce through some narratives here. And it's kind of like two truths and a lie. Have you ever played the game two truths and a lie? You get into a, into a meeting, some of you are shaking your head yes, some of you are shaking your head no. I'm not, in, I'm not promoting lying from the pulpit, okay, because I'm afraid that our building would get struck by lightning again. But I, what I am saying is there's this game, if you were to be in this room when they're playing it, and it's where you give two truths about yourself and a lie about yourself, and then people have to guess which is the lie. Yep, you guys are judging me. I see it on your face. Okay, so if, if you were to have two truths and a lie, let's say I, I say um, I ate a guinea pig in Ecuador. I went scuba diving in the Bahamas, and I slept through a 7.0 earthquake in California. One of those is not true. I've never been scuba diving. I have eaten a guinea pig in Ecuador, and it was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> So as we get into this, you're going to see two truths and a lie. You're going to see a disciple. You're going to see those who call themselves disciples that need to be discipled. And then you're going to see those who are deceived and are not disciples. Two truths and these who are living a lie. So let me pray, and we'll jump into Acts chapter 18. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that it is a light to our path, that it leads and it guides us. Lord, help us to, help us to focus in on the aim of love. From a pure heart. Father, right now I would ask that you would mold and shape our hearts, even as David prayed, that you would create in us a clean heart. You would give us a good conscience so we could be able to see light and dark, good and evil for what it really is. And God, that we would have a sincere faith, one that clings to you, even when it's tested. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We ask God that you lead and guide us in Christ's name. Amen. Number one, a sincere faith is more than being scripturally educated. It's more than being scripturally educated. Verse 24, let's read. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, 
they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. Let's stop right there for a moment. We're introduced to a man named Apollos. Apollos pops up several other times in the New Testament. This man, as we can see, was from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was a a, a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. It was in northern Egypt, and it was known for its legendary library. Not only that, the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was first Uh, was first written in this city. And so this man, Apollos, he shows up on the scene and it says that he is eloquent and competent in scriptures. He knows the scriptures front and back and he's also eloquent and can speak them in a great way. He's been instructed in the ways of the Lord. He shows up and he's fervent in spirit. That means he's passionate about God's word and he spoke and he taught it accurately concerning Jesus. So what's wrong? He only knew about the baptism of John. There was a piece missing to his theology. Though he had said all these things correct, there's something that's off in what he's taught. Now, Luke, a great historian, leaves some gaps for us. We don't know what Priscilla and Aquila say to him. We don't know what he's leaving out. We're just simply having to speculate based on the, um, the, the gaps that are in the story. So he was speaking boldly. And then all of a sudden, this well-educated man who knows the scriptures, knows the Old Testament, knows about Jesus, gets pulled aside by an older, godly couple. Now, can you just imagine this? Maybe, maybe I can imagine it more than you can imagine it. You, you get up, and you're, you're preaching God's word, and then a couple says, hey, let me tell you something. You said something wrong. <laughs> this guy, with grace and mercy and patience, listens And what he finds out is that there is a piece of information and the theology that he's not quite got yet that is revolutionary. We don't know what it was. We don't know what it was that they they said, but we know that it greatly helped the church. It says there that he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. We don't know whether or not he thought salvation was for the Jews only. He was teaching in a synagogue. We don't know if he was so well-educated in the Old Testament that he was still living by the letter of the law and hadn't quite learned about grace yet. All we know is that they pull him to the side and they talk to him about grace. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus these words, and that's why we get this mystery that is made known to us. Maybe this was the mystery that Apollos heard. Ephesians chapter 3, starting verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people of other generations, as it's been now revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. Now listen, right there, there's this mystery that has now been revealed through the apostles and the prophets. It hasn't been made known to any other generation. I don't know if this is what Apollos is being taught or not, but this is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. 
Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through, him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Did you catch that part? That you would be able to grasp a love that surpasses all knowledge. This guy, Apollos, he's scripturally educated. But to understand the love of God that surpasses all, all knowledge, all intellect, but to really understand the presence and the love of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, that you would understand the mystery that Christ is with us. It far surpasses any just scriptural understanding. Now, this guy, Apollos, I don't know how well he did in Awanas and how many patches he got and how many memory verses he made, right? I don't know, but he knew scripture. But there was something that was missing. Priscilla and Aquila, being leaders in the early church, they pull him to the side and they instruct him more accurately in the things of God. And it worked. Because then he heads off to Corinth, and this is what 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Apollos was greatly used in the early church. You know what? His sincere faith was more than just scriptural knowledge. His sincere faith was a revelation that came as he more fully understood the mystery of Christ. So a sincere faith is more than scriptural knowledge. It's also more than being a good person. Let's keep reading there, Acts 19, 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, which we just read about, watering, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's stop right there. What an interesting section here. Paul comes up and he finds these guys who are disciples. And he begins to ask him, oh, you're disciples? Well, tell me about your baptism and, and the Holy Spirit. Well, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so they, they, we've just heard about John's baptism. So we got to flip back over to Matthew chapter uh, 3 and read about John's baptism so we get a fuller understanding of what is happening here because this section of Scripture can be pretty difficult to understand. He said, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight, make his path straight. Now John wore garments of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all the Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say yourselves, We, are, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And here's, here's this part. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into a barn, into the barn, and the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. It's interesting here that these men only know about the baptism of repentance. They only know about the baptism as a preparation for the coming Messiah. They don't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about that baptism. And this is the reason, because John the Baptist represented an Old Testament way of thinking. It was a way of prepare yourself for the Messiah, prepare yourself. The new covenant doesn't come into place until the Last Supper, when Jesus stands there and says, this is the covenant of my blood. This is, this is the new covenant, which is poured out for you. And so this new covenant that's coming is going to usher in, as we see at the first part of Acts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the difference in the two is this, that John's baptism was a sign of preparation. Jesus' baptism is a sign of presence. It means that there's salvation that has taken place, that Jesus has, through his Spirit, entered your life, and now lives in and through you. This fire. A.W. Tozer said that this way in the pursuit of God. Only fire can give even a remote conception of it. In fire, he appeared at the burning bush. In a pillar of fire, he dwelt through all the long wilderness journey. The fire that glowed between the wings of the cherubim and the holy place was called the Shekinah, the presence through the years of Israel's glory, and when the old had given place to the new, he came at Pentecost as a fiery flame and rested upon each disciple. 
There's a baptism of the presence of God into the life of the believer. This is new covenant theology. Now, in a culture of insincerity, it's easy to call yourself a disciple, to understand a little bit of scripture, to even have said, yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been wet, I've gotten dunked, I've, I've gone through baptism. But are you truly regenerated from the inside out? Has there ever been a real change in your life? These disciples who thought they were good, who thought they were repentant, who thought that they were trying their best, were not saved. Alistair Begg says it this way, not all who profess to be Christians are truly followers of Jesus Christ. Regardless of Christian language they use or the Christian activities in which they participate, these, as he calls it, almost Christians, try their best, struggling to do for themselves what God in his grace has already accomplished. Christianity is not about being a better person. It's not. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's about the fact that you can't be a better person. It's about the fact that no matter how hard you try, that there's always going to be a, a crack that we try to wax over. We try to pretend that we've got it together. But Jesus Christ came lived the perfect life that we can't live, and he died the death that we should have died. He died in our place so that we could have life and have it everlasting. And there are many in the church today who have come to church, and I hear it all the time as a pastor, well, you know, I'm trying to be better. Really? And, and you think coming to church is going to make you better? It's not. It's, it's not going to make you better. It's, and there's so many who try Jesus on for a little while, and then when it doesn't work, they fall away. My mentor, Pastor Al Miller over there, loves evangelism explosion. And he said, there's two questions that you can ask, and it will really reveal someone's heart. So the first one is, do you know for sure that when you die, you'll be with God in heaven? The second question is, if you were to ask, why should I let you, why, if God was to ask, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And for a lot of people, they mix up the two. Well, you know, I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm trying to be a good person. They mix them. There is obedience to following Jesus Christ, but our goodness does nothing to get us into heaven. These disciples, they were disciples of John and his baptism. They were repentant. They probably tried to bear fruit of repentance and trying to be good. Let, let's try to do better. Let's try to do better. But they didn't know Jesus. Romans 8, 1 through 9. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. What a remarkable section of scriptures that talks about the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And when you are given the Spirit, when the Spirit comes in your life, when you're baptized into his presence, there's evidence because your life is marked by it. You no longer live for the flesh. You no longer are driven by the flesh, but you are driven by the Spirit. You long for the Spirit's leading and guiding in your life. The third one is this. A sincere faith is more than claiming the name of Jesus. And this, by far, is my my favorite section of Scripture in, in, this, in this part that we're looking at today. A sincere faith is more than claiming the name of Jesus. Pick up verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And some of the inerrant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them to be, and found it, to, it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These seven sons of Sceva. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Acts. These seven guys, they see the miraculous things that are happening. They see that even handkerchiefs and aprons of of Paul's are healing people and casting out demons. And they say, you know what? There might be something to this name Jesus. I think I'm just going to claim the name Jesus as well. And so they start to use the name Jesus. And the demon says to them, hey, so uh, Jesus I know, right? Paul, I've heard of that guy. He's, He's causing all kinds of chaos. But who are you? Who are you? What a great question. You know, in a, in a culture of insincerity, you, you can have a lot of scriptural knowledge. You can say that you're a disciple and have gone through the waters of baptism. But when you come face to face with evil, with sin, with the spiritual realm, the question is, who are you? Are you truly a child of the Most High? Are you truly in the family? Are you truly sealed with his spirit? Now, it says that these guys got into a fight with one demon-possessed man. So it's 7v1. You would think those are pretty good odds. But the seven got their pants whipped off of them. Literally. It says that they ran away naked and wounded. So if you get your pants beat off, you lost the fight, right? It's a good indicator. They ran away naked. They ran away wounded. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded. 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Who are you? Who are you? Because if you think that you can say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know Jesus. And yet you're not filled with the Spirit. You're going to get handled. We all know people who have grown up in church. They're scripturally educated. They probably do have patches still hanging up on the vest inside their closet. We do know people who have walked through the waters of baptism, who at one time or another claimed a repentance that said, yeah, I believe in that. We do know those people. We know people today who grew up in a Christian culture who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And we've seen the evil one just handle them. We've seen them not be able to say no to sin. We've seen them not have self-control. We've seen it wreck their life. And for lack of a better word, they've been wounded and walked away naked, losing all that they have. They've lost family. They've lost friends. They've lost jobs. Wounded. It says this, verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. A sincere faith, if we just want to wrap it up, gets right with God. A sincere faith doesn't try to wax over the cracks, doesn't try to say I'm a good person, doesn't say I have it all together, doesn't say, oh yeah, I know the scriptures, yeah. A sincere faith gets right with God. We see here that they extolled God. I love this word. It means praised enthusiastically. They saw this witness of what took place, and it caused them to worship. And in their worship, you see what they did. They brought the things that were in their life they knew shouldn't be there, and they burned them. It was, it was a sacrifice. It was a costly sacrifice because it cost some 50,000 pieces of silver is what it came to. So here's, here's what I want you to know. A life of sincere faith is a life of love from a pure heart, from a good conscience that no longer calls evil good, and a sincere faith. It's a faith that says, there's some things in my life that I've been hiding that only God and I know about, and I'm laying it on the altar. I'm laying it on the altar. I don't want it there anymore because he is worthy of so much more. Here's my question to you. Where are you? Who are you? Are you someone who's been scripturally educated your whole life? Are you someone who walked through, made a decision at a young point in life, and you've seen no evidence of the Spirit in your life until now? And you want to see that. Are you someone who has simply claimed the name of Jesus because you've grown up in a Christian home, in a Christian culture? Today, a sincere faith gets right with God. It worships. Can we worship? Let me pray for us. Gracious Father,
We come to you today longing to be sincere. Father, you would search our hearts right now, that you would seek us, that you would know us, that you would reveal to us by the presence of your spirit anything that is in our life that needs to be thrown on the altar, anything that we've held, held silent or kept quiet or in the darkness, Lord, that you would reveal it to us now and that we would submit to you. Father, I pray for us as we go about in a culture of insincerity that we would be sincere, that we would be people who leave here with a charge, an aim of love. Father, I thank you so much for your word and your spirit. We ask God that you do what you do. You save souls in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.